This is... Man, that sounds like murder. I'm Caitlin. I'm Kristen. And I'm Jody. I'm the mom. <laughs> and on this podcast, we talk about true crime cases and just the facts, the details, a little bit of things that we don't know. <laughs> if you listen to the last episode. And I know none of it because I come in completely in the dark. Yep. Yes. And so we're just getting her reaction on different true crime cases. Um, let's get right into it, I suppose. I suppose so. With Joel Rifkin. Uh, Bad dude. Yeah, hate him. Literally awful. I... Yeah. No. <laughs> Everything about this case is just, like, it, it makes me want to, like, I don't know, hurt him. <laughs> like, yeah. in every way is possible. Is he still alive? Is this a recent case? or Um, it was, like, 90s. Oh, okay. So... so in our lifetime. My yeah. lifetime, not your, your lifetime. Your lifetime, <laughs> yes, not ours. Alright, so... You'd be really old if it was our lifetime. Um. <laughs> he was born on January 20th, 1959, and adopted three weeks later on February 14th, 1959, by an upper-middle-class upper family in Long Island. Everyone said that the family was loving, they were nice. In fact, they loved the adoption process so much that they adopted another daughter. Joel's dad was a good student and athlete, opposed to Joel, who was clumsy, uncoordinated, and did really bad in school, despite the fact that he had an IQ of 128. He just wasn't good at school. Yeah. Uh, it was later found out he had dyslexia. Ah. Um, for much of his childhood, he felt like he was letting his dad down, and he just wasn't meeting his, his standards. He thought he was just not being a good son. Was his dad, like, strict, or just... He was just, like, a popular athlete, kind of macho kind of man, and he just felt like he wasn't living up to those expectations. Their relationship was described as rocky. However, Joel's dad killed himself because... He was diagnosed with prostate cancer. Oh. And this was one year after he got diagnosed. Okay. Um, Joel got bullied very heavily in school because of his poor posture, elongated face, and the fact that he wore glasses. Oh, I know. We would all be bullied then. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, just basically, even the nerdy kids picked on him. So he just wasn't liked at all. No. Um... And then when Joel entered high school, he was given the nickname Turtle. Oh, what is their story behind that? He was just slow and had bad, bad posture. That's awful. Yeah. Don't feel um, bad for him. Oh. <laughs> well, I do. Um, Don't. At this point, I do. <laughs> you shouldn't. Uh, he tried to join the track team in yearbook, but they just pranked him instead of actually trying to help him. And, you know, get him on the team all nice and good. Um, they dunked his head in the toilet bowl, hit his clothes, and called him, I'm going to say a bad word here. They called him Lardass. <laughs> oh. Was he overweight? Or they just said it just to be mean? They just said it just to be mean. Uh, <sighs> oh, um, awful. All of it. Someone stole Joel's camera after he signed up for yearbook. And he worked really hard. To get the yearbook published, like, even though he was being picked on the whole time, he wasn't invited to the year-end rap party. Oh, that's so not nice. 
Um, let's... People can be really mean. Yeah, like that is yeah. including him. Yeah, right. well, don't mean, feel bad for him. I uh, hate him. I, I don't know where we're going with the story. But you I won't mean, feel bad for him. You after. know, you just feel bad for humans in general that yeah. are treated like that. Yeah, yeah. but you won't admit it. Yeah. <laughs> um. Let's start with before we get like that's all the childhood stuff. Before we start describing the murders, let's take a moment to. I'm gonna say the names of the known names of the. Victims. victims. Yeah, because they deserve to be known more than and, so. Yeah. And then we'll do a little moment of silence to honor and respect them. Also, tomorrow's Memorial Day, which is... Which is for veterans. Right, usually, but... but you people know. do generally take the time to think of anyone who's passed away. Anyway, their names... I'm gonna not pronounce some of these right. Tiffany Bresciani, Julie Blackbird, Lauren Marquez... Mary Catherine Williams, Barbara Jacobs, Yoon Lee, Marianne Holloman, Leah Evans, Violet O'Neill, Mary Ellen DeLuca, Lorraine Orvieto, Iris Sanchez, Jenny Soto, Anna Lopez, and Heidi Balsh. That's a lot of names. Let's do a moment of silence. All right. Very sad. Yeah. Rest in peace. Mm. I hope they're living happier in heaven. So, is there more people that they suspect that he murdered? Mm-hmm. Those are just the ones they, they know. They think of? there was about fourteen, but there was only nine, and they don't know the names of the other people. And those are the only ones he got convicted of. All right. He had a really long history of morbid fantasies. However, in March 1989, he acknowledged that the violent mental images were, quote, a little more intense intense than regular at that time. Um, In fact, his mother chose that month to travel out of state, leaving Joel alone in their house. Did she choose it because he said that or just coincidence? It's just coincidence. Oh, okay. I would have wanted to get away from that, too. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, um... The night of the first victim, he was cruising Manhattan's East Village for hookers one night at about 10 p.m. Where he selected a woman who he knows as Susie. That was, her name was actually Heidi. Um, I don't know where he got Susie from. Um, she was a drug addict. And obviously that's not like the only main piece of her personality. Obviously, she was a person behind that. Yes, yes. That's just... In this case, that was a key point because this was most of his victims. Yes, he was mostly drawn to prostitutes who were on drugs. Probably found them easier to handle. Um, They hooked up, um, and Susie practically, according to Joel, begged her to take begged him begged him to take her out in search of drugs um he did not like that he in fact picked up a howitzer shell and beat her furiously he said quote i just lost control i stopped when i got tired oh. um she was just left exactly <sighs> she was still alive after oh. i don't know when like, how many hits when she was alive. She fought back furiously. Um, she, she, she bought 
bot bit. <laughs> she bit one of his fingers before, like, really deeply, before he strangled her to death. After wrestling her body into a plastic trash bag, he cleaned up the blood and all the signs of fighting and tussling. And then slept oh. for several hours. Didn't even leave? Just Yeah, this was in like a hotel room of sorts. Oh. He just went to bed. Wow. Um, then he he woke up. No, this was his house. Woke up and dragged Susie into the ba- basement. Dr- you couldn't see me, but I did quotations around Susie. <laughs> um, dragged her into the basement, draped her body across the washer and dryer, and kind of made a makeshift operating table, and you used an exacto knife to dismember her. Oh. Um, Yikes. In his mind, this was, quote, reduced to biology class. Uh, what? Like. That is not okay. Uh, yeah. Um, no. oh to... my gosh. This hasn't been okay from the beginning. <laughs> no. no, but for the, the for right, him right. to be able to say, oh, like, no, it's perfectly fine. It's just the same as biology. Yeah, you know, I'm just like, you know. Yeah. yeah. No. Yeah. In his mind, he, I feel like he probably thought that was perfectly fine. Yeah. Because she's already dead. Why not? Yeah. And to stop identification, she, she, he cut off her fingertips pulled her teeth out with pliers, and then jammed her head into an old paint can. Um, and then put the other parts into garbage bags and into his mom's car, where he then drove it across the state line to New Jersey and dropped the head and legs in the woods. And then he returned back to Manhattan and threw the arms and torso into the East River. Um, he then waited more than a year to claim his second victim. He said he was vague on dates, but it's, this was around 14 month af- months after Susie was murdered, or late in 1990. The next victim was Julie Blackbird. He said he selected her for her pseudo-Madonna look. Mm. Yeah. Don't know what that is, but okay. probably the singer Madonna. Yeah. He felt that she resembled her. Oh, I was confused <laughs> by the word pseudo. It. <laughs> um. He drove her to his house, and his mom was again out of town. What? No wonder he's got yeah. too much free time on his hands. Um. About and then they spent the night together, and then nine the next morning he recalled quote completely bugging out beating Blackbird with a heavy table leg before he strangled her. When she was dead, he thought about raping her. Raping her corpse. Um, in a conscious emulation of Ted Bundy. But the prospect repulsed him. Oh, that repulsed him. That's too far. Oh yeah, that's too far. That's Mm -hmm. definitely, that's so far. He was thinking like, I could rape her like Ted Bundy, but I don't like that. Yeah, no, wow. Hmm. How so old he, is this guy at this point? He was born in 1959, and this is 1990. Okay. I feel like that's his way of being like, oh, I have morals. I'm pretty sure, I had it in here at one point, I think. But the cops did find her body in the river mm-hmm. a little bit. They just didn't know who she was. Oh. Like, Susie's body in the river, didn't know who she was, and like kind of just like lost it. But he didn't want that to happen again. So he tried to really 
get this plan really good. This so he wanted the body found. No. Oh, he did not. He did want the not. Body. Oh, so the fact that they found pieces of Susie made him want to get this one a little bit. Yes, he was like, I need to do this one better. So he purchased cement and a large mortar bin. Uh. Um, dismembered the corpse, and placed the head, arms, and legs in bucket weighted with concrete, and then the torso and a milk crate by itself, and then put her head and torso in the East River. You would think that he would give up on the East River, but... Uh-huh. Um, and if they didn't so find they're her... they're encased in concrete now, this girl is? Yes. All her body parts? Oh, Jesus. I believe so. These remains were never found. We only I know... imagine why not. Yeah. <laughs> now that I think about it, I think because the East River is so, like, muggy and gross, they didn't find Susie's body parts in the river. I think they they found something of her... Or, I don't remember. She, something washed up. Maybe. I don't know. But we only know that he did it and, like, what happened because of his confession and the fact that her diary was stashed in his bedroom. Oh. Why'd she bring Wait, that yeah, along why? for anyways? <laughs> I don't know. That is Maybe she just had it, because I think she was also a prostitute, so she probably just carried it around in some sort of bag. Later oh. on, he started a landscaping business. <laughs> April 1991. This sounds convenient way to get, bo- like, a convenient way to get rid of bodies. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> um, he rented a space at a local nursery to store his equipment. Yeah. <laughs> I think you know what equipment that is. Um, he complained to his landlord... Quote, I kept losing all my customers. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I wonder why. Because he literally had equipment here, so I'm assuming... I don't even know. They probably just got bad vibes from him, dude. Yeah. Um, by summer, he was falling behind on the rent. His obsession with murder had consumed his life, and he used the job site, quote, job site, as a way station... For corpses in transit. Uh Basically, he would just take them there, take care of them, and send them off on their way to get rid of them, I suppose. The next victim was Barbara Jacobs. She was 31, and she was also an addict with arrests on her record for auto theft and prostitution. There's a lot more details about her. Um... He picked her up on July 13th, 1991, and took her to his house. Again, how often is this mom out of town? Right. Like, I know the dad's not alive anymore, but stop leaving your crazy psychopath son home alone. Yeah. Maybe she felt safer away from him. (laughs) I don't know. He's, what'd you say he was, he's, what, in his 40s? Yeah. Close to... I didn't do the math. I don't know. But when she fell asleep, she fell asleep first, he hit her on the head with the same table leg he used for Julie. Um, And then he finished the job with strangulation. Then put off by the thought of dismemberment. Oh, this time he doesn't feel like it. No, no, no. no. Never. Gross now. No, yes. no. Why would he have it? <laughs> he wrapped her in plastic, folded her into a cardboard box, and put her in the back of his mom's pickup. If his mother only knew the stuff that he put in her car. I don't know. Then he drove to the Hudson River, Ah. different river, and put her into the water near a cement plant. Mm. Why does he like cement so much? It's 
easy. It's, it's harder to get, not like easy, but it's harder to get them, like, if you find a block of cement, you're not cracking it open. You're like, ooh, what's inside of this? Like, <laughs> it's just, you can't really identify it. She was actually found by firefighters on a training exercise, but this time Rifkin reported, quote, it didn't even phase me. Um, the coroner said it was a most likely a drug overdose, and she was actually buried in Potter's Field Cemetery, unidentified. Wait, now what? I thought the coroner did, thought that she died of From a drug, drug overdose, overdose, and then was okay. They they didn't he beat her? Well, I guess strangled maybe because, her. Maybe because she was in the river, her body was too damaged for them to determine it. That seems. That's a terrible It was hours corner. later. Only hours later? Yeah. Like, the, that coroner does not need to be doing that job. I don't know, but she was buried unidentified until Rifkin confessed to it two years later. Ugh. Um, the next victim, Mary Ellen DeLuca. She was a 22-year-old Long Island native, and she was last seen at 11 p.m. on September 1st, 1991, when she left a group of friends to earn the price of her next fix is what this says uh-huh. um he found her on jamaica avenue in queens and drove her around new york until sunrise um shelling out 150 dollars for drugs at various stops oh, they wow. ended up at a cheap motel Although it upset him the first victim but by this one he's like i'll pay it's fine Whatever. i think he was just annoyed by the fact that she asked so much yeah like i think by this time he's used to it mm. I don't even know. They ended up at a cheap motel. DeLuca originally didn't want to have sex. Um, She just wanted more drugs. And then rushed through the sex, complaining the whole time. And then at some point in this process, Joel asked her if she wanted to die. She said yes. Oh. And he strangled her. And he said that she did nothing. She just accepted it. He remembered her murder as one of the weird ones. However, it left him with a new problem because this wasn't his house. He was afraid to drag her out into the daylight. Apparently, he drew inspiration from Hitchcock's frenzy and went out to purchase a cheap steamer trunk, squeezing DeLuca inside it. From the motel, he drove upstate to Orange County and left her body at a rest stop outside Cornwall near West Point. She was found on October 1st. Completely. He didn't try to hide her. Yeah. Completely naked except for her bra and no ID. So, and then she was severely decomposed so they couldn't identify a cause of death. And she was unidentified until June 1993. I think that was when he got caught, I believe. Confessed. That's the word. He was ca- His process was just all over the place. He was just choosing people that he saw was easy, I guess. Yeah. <clears throat> like, there was... There was no specific look. Like, the next victim is Korean. But all of, the, of these other people, I believe they're just white women. Yeah. He spared most of the hookers that he patronized on a near nightly basis and only kind of picked up the ones that he just saw on a whim. He was in cahoots with a lot of local prostitutes, but he only picked the ones that he didn't know. In September... He picked up 31-year-old Yoon Lee, a Korean native, like I said before. Um, and he, she was his second prostitute in an hour. Oh. And he had been with her before. 
Did he have, um, did any of his prior victims, had he had them more than once like her, or was she his first? Yeah, this was the only one that he actually, like, knew before. He struck her on impulse and strangled her while she mouthed something about a big mistake, he said. It was his first murder of someone he knew and experienced a lot of remorse. He said, quote, actually, I thought I liked her. Interesting. Why do it then? Why I don't know. Why do you do it? He then put her into the same trunk he used for Mary DeLuca and dropped her in the East River. She was found on September 23rd, eight days before DeLuca. So even though he killed DeLuca first, they were found in yeah. the border. Mm-hmm. At the Harlem River mouth. Harlem River mouth? Harlem River's mouth. Lee's ex-husband identified her sparing her from being marked, buried, unmarked. Unmarked, buried? That's what I was going to say. That's what I was going to say. Obviously, that's not right. He doesn't remember the name of the next victim. He just calls her number six. And he picked her up and killed her a few days before Christmas 1991. And he strangled her in his car during oral sex, describing the event as very quick. Afterwards, he drove back to Long Island with the body just slumped in the seat next to him oh and then concealed her under a tarp at the landscaping business oh just under the tarp not just under a tarp he then drove to a recycling plant in westbury where he had once worked at some point and just took a 55 gallon oil drum oh just Uh, took it just oh yeah just just take it man this says helped himself (laughs) (laughs) yeah there was plenty of room in her, in her, in the barrel for her. With her hidden in the barrel, um, they rode to South Bron- South Bronx. He went into a junkyard and rolled her into the East River. He then, as he was leaving, confronted by patrolmen who accused him of legal dumping. Oh, but <laughs> but he if was. They only knew what he was dumping. Yeah, he was like, oh no no no, I was just getting junk. I was just collecting junk. Uh, and they let him go with a warning. Uh, oh my. Yeah, they probably just didn't want to have to deal with it. Because I'm assuming this was late in the night. This worked so well, the oil drum worked so well, that he purchased several more oh. for the next victims. Why not? A he, little premeditation. Yeah. He, knew, he used the next one on Lorraine Orvieto, a 28-year-old who tried to control her mood swings caused by manic depression with cocaine. Oh. This was very expensive, but she was a prostitute to get get the money to pay for it. This was far, far away from, not far, far away, but like mentally wise, I suppose, if you get what I mean. I'm trying to think of the word. Far off from how she grew up, she was a high school cheerleader. Um, Rifkin picked up Orvieto on December 26, 1991, and parked near a schoolyard fence and strangled her while she performed oral sex. He's very into this now. For some reason, this is a new thing, I suppose. Mm-hmm. However, discovered she was HIV positive. How did he find that out? He found a bo- bottle of AZT in her purse. I think that's some sort of medicine. Oh, for like that. specifically. Yeah. Um, he kept the pills. <laughs> Uh-huh. Along with her jewelry and ID as souvenirs. 
He then went back to his landscaping lot, put her into an oil drum, drove her to Brooklyn, and dropped it into the Coney Island Creek. She was then found by a fisherman in July of the next year. So, quite a while after, two months before her family filed a missing persons report. Wow, so she was found before her family even realized she was missing, and it had been, like, a year? That's awesome. And then one week later, after he killed Lorraine, he went hunting again. Uh, and he picked up Marianne Holloman, who was his oldest victim at 39. She was an addict who sewed personalized G-strings for strippers when she wasn't working in the streets. Hey, you know. She was, she make was a doing her thing. Gotta do what you gotta do, man. Mm-hmm. Um, he drove her to the same parking lot where he had taken Yoon Lee and strangled her during fellatio. Later, he recalled the act as very automatic, not much with that one. And then he did the same so thing. He sounds like he's starting to get bored by it. He did the same well, thing with the oil drum. It. Yeah, he did the same thing with the oil drum. Coney Island. Dropped her in. Whatever. He's just starting. He's just finding his groove with yeah, murder. Sounds like it. And then an anonymous caller reported her floating her remains to police. In July of ni- 1992, and she was killed in January, so this was a couple months after. Seems like he likes this river now because they're found so late after, mm-hmm. and which means they're both basically unidentifi- unidentifiable. However, she was identified from her dental records and returned to her family for burial. The two people found in the river by the police suggest, like, Obviously, the police were like, this is probably a serial killer. Yeah, but it's time to start checking this river more frequently. They have their hands full with the 2,000 murders a year. Oh. And the junkie prostitutes. That's a lot for that area. They, it wasn't really a high priority. His ninth, ninth victim was found before 7 and 8. He was vague in details, doesn't really remember anything. He just said she had tattoos, picked her up in Manhattan. And that she fought for life when he strangled her. And then she was before Mary Holloman. Yeah. Sometime that winter, he dismembered her and put her into the last of his oil drums and dropped her into Brooklyn's Newtown Creek, where she was spotted in the rusty barrel with her foot sticking out on May 13th, 1992. And the cocaine in her system prompted detectives to brand her as a drug mule. Oh. Killed accidentally by the rupture of drug-filled condoms in her stomach. Oh my. Yep. Um, police, obviously, a year later, was like, hmm, maybe we shouldn't have done that when he confessed. But she remains anonymous. They don't know who it was. Yeah. Um, he actually went back to school, college, in 1992, taking uncredited classes at S-U-N-Y Farmingdale. His landscaping business was basically under. He wasn't getting any money. He was 700 overdue in rent. And as before, he cut most of his classes and focused on repairing his trunk. Truck. Sounded like I said trunk. You did. His truck. (laughs) Repairing his truck. Renting video porn and trolling for prey. 
Just the so, living the bachelor life. Literally, just all the basics that you might need. Just living the dream, man. He picked up Iris Sanchez, his next victim, a 25-year-old working First Avenue on Mother's Day weekend. He was AWOL from his part-time job at a liquor store nearby, which obviously someone didn't, they didn't like that, so he clearly, he was just, he didn't even care anymore. He was just trying to kill people. Um, he picked yeah. her up in broad daylight. Wow. And drove her to a Manhattan housing project. Quote, down by where Macy's has the fireworks. <laughs> After strangling her during sex, he drove her corpse across the Brooklyn R- Bridge, trying to find a drop-off point, and he chose another illegal dump site <laughs> within sight of the J- JFK International Airport. So it was, like, really close to the airport. And wedged her body underneath a rotting mattress. And took all of her jewelry and her watch and stuff. And was not found until June 1993 when he drew police a map. To find oh, her. wow. So they never, found, they wouldn't have found her any other way. The next, this is getting so depressing. I just keep saying the next victim. There's so many. This is too much. Anna Lopez had three children by three different fathers and worked the streets to feed her cocaine addiction. And Rifkin picked her up on May 25th, 1992 on Memorial Day. Hey, that's tomorrow. Working Atlantic Avenue in Queens. Um, they retired to a nearby street for sex and strangled her. And then drove through the night to Brewster in Putnam County. I don't know where any of these places are. I'm not from New York. I don't... Yeah. But if you're from New York, you probably know where these things are. I'm just saying the names. <laughs> and dumped her course al- course. <laughs> corpse. Corpse. Along I-84. And the next day, a motorist stopped to go to the bathroom and found her. She was missing an earring, later found, and his souvenir treasure box in his bedroom. The next victim, Violet O'Neill, a 20-year-old... 21-year-old prostitute was the first victim he took to his house in over a year. He picked her up in the city and strangled her after sex as he does at his mom's house and dismembered her in the bathtub. He then took her remains to the waters surrounding Manhattan. Her torso was in the Hudson River wrapped in black plastic while her arms and legs were in a suitcase that they found. It's like Horrible so, the, the, la- the victim before this one, he's like, eh, just dump her next to the highway. And then this one, he got a little more. Yeah, I don't... He's so all over the place. Yeah. Like, they wouldn't have found him if they didn't do it the way they did. You'll find out. <laughs> the next victim. Mary Catherine Williams had been a high school homecoming queen and college cheerleader in North Carolina. She was married to a pro football player. And divorced the following year and had to come to New York in search of an acting career, but ended up doing drugs and living on the street. Rifkin actually dated her twice and had a, oh. had a great time. Interesting. And then the final time he picked her to up. I think that someone dated him not once, but twice. Like, you didn't find anything wrong enough with him the first time that you came back? Yeah, um, he picked her up October 2nd, 1992, and bought Williams a fix, and tried to choke her while she dozed off in his mom's car. 
lots of lots of his mom's car. Mm-hmm. Um, she woke up Does fighting. He even own his own car? <laughs> I don't even know. He doesn't seem like much of a catch. Yeah, she woke up fighting and kicked the gear shift hard enough to snap it oh. before Joel smothered her. She did. After struggling to get the car started and moving, he drove her all the way to Yorktown, and she was found on December 21st, 1992, and he took her credit cards and a wicker handbag filled with costume jewelry, so much, in fact, that the amount would briefly cause detectives to inflate his body count. Basically, there was so much jewelry and stuff in there that they thought that he killed more people. Oh, I see. I didn't understand what you said. Yeah. Um, and she was another unmarked grave until Ifkin confessed. Mm. And then the last victim of 1992, Jenny Soto, was a 23-year-old addict whose many trips to detox never turned her life around. He picked her up around 11 p.m. on November 16th and strangled her in his pickup. So... Oh, he has one now. Apparently, after sex, and she proved, quote, the toughest one to kill. He said that she broke all ten fingernails as she clawed his face and neck. Winded from the battle, he claimed her bra, underwear, earrings, ID, and a drug syringe as trophies. Poor guy, you're so winded from from killing this one. Oh, poor dude. He rolled her into the Harlem River, where... Yoon Lee was found earlier that year. It was the year before. 14 months earlier. She was found the following day and was identified from fingerprint records of her last arrest. And they initially suspected her ex-con, ex-boyfriend. Her fight for life gave him pause. Her slaying capped his own frenzied acceleration period. And left left him with embarrassing wounds to explain. Uh-huh. He would not strike again for 15 weeks. Oh, my oh, God. Wow. <laughs> wow, what a guy. Uh, just long enough for everything to heal, I'm sure. And when he did, he took better care to hide the body better, I suppose, is what he said. Next victim of 1993 was Leah Evans, a 28-year-old who lived with her mother in Brooklyn and was abandoned by the father of her two children, and she found peace, I suppose, in drugs. I don't know. And worked the streets to keep herself, quote, well. Rifkin picked her up on February 27th, 1993, stopping for sex in an abandoned parking lot. She started to undress and then got upset and demanded privacy. And he refused and strangled her when she started to cry. Um, He then drove her to the eastern end of Long Island and buried her in the woods. The only one of his victims who got a shallow grave. Hikers found her on May 9th after they spied a hand hand protruding from the ground. A forensic anthropologist was hired to reconstruct the victim's face, but Rifkin confessed before it was finished. Later on, when he confessed, her driver's license was at his house. The next victim, Lauren Marquez, was a 28-year-old addict and prostitute. She left Tennessee for New York. He picked her up on April 2nd, 1993, and drove to a point near the Manhattan Bridge, and he just strangled her. There was nothing 
it didn't happen as usual. There was no mm-hmm. like. He just felt like doing it. Like, right, yeah. Um. He was briefly distracted by a man who passed the car walking a dog, <laughs> and almost she almost escaped. She fought him, resisting the strangulation until he snapped her neck. Oh. Um. He then dumped her body into the Suffolk County Pine Barrens. Where she laid undiscovered until he was arrested and confessed. <sighs> anyway, um, besides the broken neck, she had fractured ribs, even though he claimed he couldn't remember hitting her. And she was identified through DNA testing on August 20th, 1993. The last victim, yeah. Tiffany Bresciani, was. Another girl from the South, I guess, near the end. He really liked the Southern ones, I guess. I don't know. And was drawn to New York by dreams of acting or dancing. Instead, she wound up on heroin and performed for strangers in strip clubs and cars. And was picked up by Rifkin on June 24th, 1993. And was his second hooker of the night, his fourth within two days. Rifkin picked her up on Allen Street and drove her to the New York Post parking lot where he strangled her at 5.30 a.m. From there, he drove back to East Meadow, which is where his house was, but they didn't go to his house, and stopped at stores along the way for rope and tarp while she just was in the back of his mother's car. I have so much respect for, like, prostitutes because, like, they're just out there trying to make money and have to deal with all these men being, like, creepy. There's, I guarantee you, this is, like, they have multiple creepy encounters, not just getting murdered. Like, they have to have so many, like, bad encounters with men that, like, I have got so much respect for them. Okay. And then, so she was laying in the back of the seat, swaddled in tarp, concealed in the trunk, which leads to my dear sister's part of the story. Oh, is he going to get caught with her in the car? Mm-hmm. We are leading to the next part, a.k.a. the arrest, the confessions, all of that. The, the court. Here you go. Everything. So, uh, Rifkin was driving, right? Just chilling. Cruising. body. He was just, right? The cops see that he has no license plate. And they're wow. like, Wow, if you're going to be a murder and you got a dead body in your car, why would you not <laughs> right. It's his mom's car. Like, That's not even, like, the his problem. On there, the lights are working. Yeah, yeah. So, um, cops turn the lights on, whatever. He continues driving. He doesn't stop. They do chase him, but he's not, like, a high-speed chase. It's just, a, it's just normal. Just this is my favorite part of the story. Like, it's so, Ridiculous. Like, <laughs> the the satisfaction that you get, the fact that he gets caught in this way, <laughs> continue. So, uh, yeah, he gets pulled over for no license plate. He makes the cops just follow him for a while. And they go up to the car. No, can I say this? No, you, you skipped a part. I did? Yes. Um, as this slow speed chase happens, <laughs> um, he decides he decides to give up. Crashes into a tree. Oh, yeah. Stumbles out of the car and has his hands up with his license in his hand and just hands it to him. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe to try and distract from, hey, don't go look in the car. I don't know. But they smelled so, it. <laughs> uh, he, uh, he gets put in the back of police car, whatever, and they're, they're like, something smells weird here. So they look at the back of the truck and there's, uh, what, Tiffany... Yeah. Um, under the tarp, whatever. And they're like, hey, <laughs> what's that? Normal people don't have bodies on their <laughs> Um, anyways, 
So they take him in for questioning. He starts being questioned around 8.25 a.m., June 28th, 1993. Keep in mind, Tiffany was murdered at 5.30, so this is all in the same yes. morning, night. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, it went on for eight hours, and none of it was recorded. Uh, Riffin, wow. Rifkin claimed to have asked for a lawyer at least 20 times, quote-unquote, oh. uh, but was turned down every time. But Which is illegal, but he doesn't deserve it. Right. I mean, obviously everyone deserves it. It's the law, but... Right. But the transcript of the interview... If he actually did ask for one. We don't know. Right, yeah. Right. But the transcript of the interview that the police gave said that, that they offered him the liberty of getting himself a lawyer, but he declined. Um, so very conflicting he, story. Yes. He wanted them to go get him one, but he didn't want to go out and get one himself. Oh, no, absolutely not. It's That's just too so much work. Oh, yeah. yeah. So Rifkin, without a lawyer or really any kind of counsel, gave a detailed description of 17 murders. Uh, he wrote out as many names as he could remember and drew maps when needed. Um, he was pretty much emotionless through the whole thing often referred to them as the events or incidents, referred to them as the numbers he would assign them. The police didn't want lawyers to intervene in the first place because they knew that if a lawyer told them to stop talking, then many of the deaths would go unknown. Right. So, um... You gotta follow the law or else all of it gets thrown out in court. Right, right. So, what are you gonna do? But they didn't record it. So Uh, when they went to his house in East Meadow, they didn't tell his adopted mother that, um, why he was being held. They just told her initially that he had been, um, yeah, Yeah, just a traffic violation. Yeah, it was just a traffic violation, and then later told her he had been arrested for a crime, but didn't say what crime. Eventually, news coverage told her everything that was happening, and she got in touch with her lawyer, who referred her to a criminal attorney named Robert Sale. Sale called the officer who was questioning Rifkin and told him to stop questioning him, like, immediately, but apparently... He was still questioned for an hour more while Sale wasn't there. Which is also illegal, like but... they're really screwing this up as far yeah. as the court case goes. By the time Rifkin was done being questioned and Sale had shown up, he already spoke about everything in great detail. And although he gave everything he could remember, there was a multiple occasions where he couldn't remember names, places, whatever. Like what he called the number six. Right. Yeah. He said he killed Barbara Jacobs in August 1991, but her body was found in July 1991, so that makes no sense. Uh, but he did actually tell the police where to find the bodies of Lauren Marquez and Iris Sanchez. They were found in June 1993. And that same day, June 29th, that they were found, he finally met Sale for the first time. Oh. And the first thing he told him was that the police had taken away his glasses, which had given him a really bad migraine and rendered him unable to function. This, this poor dude had um, a migraine. Oh. Mm. Oh, God. If Oh, God. Poor, poor dude. Migraines suck, but you also murdered 17 people. That's just a little bit of justice. Um, so, (laughs) I actually wrote on the paper in uh, parentheses, you poor baby. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, So, Sale and and Rifkin came before the judge, uh, his name is John Kingston, half an hour later, and Rifkin pleaded not guilty in the case of Tiffany, what, Bresciani? Yeah. 
Oh, the one he was caught with her body in the yes, car? Yes, yes. Pleaded not guilty. Oh, my God. <laughs> Sal knew he couldn't be released on bail, so he didn't fight for it, but he managed to convince the judge to postpone the formal arraignment by two weeks, and Rifkin was immediately moved to the Nassau County Correctional Facility in East Meadow. He was formally arraigned for the murder of Tiffany on July 15, 1993, and reasserted his plea of not guilty. Ugh. His attorney tried to have Rifkin's confession rejected by the court as illegally acquired because Rifkin wasn't advised of his rights when the police questioned him. And Sale also tried to have the various murder charges against him consolidated and heard at Nassau County as part of a single trial because he thought that a jury in Rifkin's hometown would be easier to persuade into accepting his plea of not guilty by reason of insanity. A formal hearing... hearing was scheduled to start in November 1993, but before it could happen, Rifkin fired Sale <laughs> and oh. hired Nassau County's former assistant district attorney, Michael Soshnick, and his partner, John Lawrence. And I put this in quotation marks because it's a lot of fancy lawyer words I don't understand. I might understand it while reading it out loud and sound stupid, but I'm going to read it. It says, The suppression hearing to adjudicate on the question whether or not the constitutional rights of the accused had been violated in obtaining evidence against the accused, thereby entitling the accused to have the illegally and unconstitutionally obtained evidence suppressed. That's all one thing. Came up for hearing on November 8th, 1993. Soshnik and Lawrence argued to have Rifkin's confession thrown out as well. They also sought uh, the the suppression of the evidence obtained by the search of Rifkin's truck because when he was stopped because the police did not have sufficient probable cause to go through his truck. They smelled it. (laughs) Well, one, they smelled it, and two, if you run away from a cop, that's probable cause. Right. Yeah, I would think so. Plus, you wrecked the car, so they're going to go up near the car and check things out. Right. And so apparently it was illegal. Like, make sure there's no one else in the car, make sure everything's okay. The assistant district attorney, Fred Klein... And it's not like she was hidden, like, she was wrapped in tarp in the backseat. Yeah. The assistant district attorney, Fred Klein, offered Rifkin a deal of 46 years to life in prison for all the murders in return of a guilty plea on all charges. Rifkin denied because he believed that the case would be thrown out on grounds of insanity. Um, for that, it should have been thrown out because he wasn't saying if he believed it could be thrown out on. <laughs> <laughs> um, his lawyers started to behave weirdly, as in um, Soshnik would become would show up unprepared and late to multiple hearings. Like they were trying to get him. Lawrence just didn't show up for days on end. Sounds like Amber Heard's <laughs> And I'm gonna say this and I don't care who it offends. Screw Amber Heard. Like, she sucks. Her lawyers suck. I mean, they're just doing I their job. Her, I think but... her, lawyers are, her lawyers aren't even trying. Oh, no. I think Which that... I think his lawyers aren't trying either. <laughs> because they know that it's so obvious. It is very obvious. Anyway. So, by March 1994... Uh, the judge had enough of them and uh, threw out their uh, arguments because he didn't br- approve of their behavior um, and was just not convinced by them at all. No. He was like, no. guys, what? <laughs> and so, um... The it's ju- like um how the judge said that the, ju- the jury for Amber Heard had to strike all crying evidence from 
like they couldn't use her crying as a reason to think right. that she's right innocent. Yeah. Yeah. So the trial was scheduled to begin in April 1994. When Rifkin found out that his lawyers were doing this, he fired Soshnik but left Lawrence to defend him alone. And Lawrence had no experience in criminal trials. So he was, he was just stuck. Um, on April 11th, 1994, the jury was selected, and on April 20th, the arguments opened. Now, the prosecution was led by Fred Klein. He argued that Rifkin was a sexual sadist, obtained great satisfaction from the suffering of his victims, had been caught red-handed, and was now using mental illness as an excuse to get away with the murders. Sounds about right. Yeah. Rifkin's attorney argued that he was a paranoid schizophrenic living in the Twilight Zone <laughs> oh. with little control over his motions. What evidence were, is there for that? Which were, more, which were more violent, irresistible compulsions that left no room for choice. Um, uh, I, I, I hate I, it I when... I say, like... First of all, you would have to imagine that anybody who murders in in bulk like this, a serial killer, you would think, oh my god, they're definitely insane. They can get the insanity plea. Because as a, as a, nor as a sane person, you think you have to be insane to be that way. Right. Mm -hmm. But they're not insane. They are clearly know think, what they're um, doing. Ed Kemper. Like, he was insanely smart. He, I mean, this guy had a what IQ of 128. Like, yes. these people know what they're and doing. Like, Ed yeah. Kemper helped set up profiling. Like, literally, they the, they're extremely intelligent. They know exactly what they're doing. They're not yeah. insane, although it's insane to normal people to right. think mm -hmm. that they can do it. Right. And I hate it when through these cases it makes it so much harder for people with these mental illnesses right to get to help. get help because like in the Amber Heard case the bipolar not everyone who's bipolar behaves that way it's crazy not everyone who is paranoid schizophrenic murders people right. like it's just put such a bad rap on these people right yeah. for things that they just are using to get out of it right mm -hmm. yeah As like obviously speech. Amber Heard is bipolar i mean that's what she was diagnosed as right I'm, not a I'm not familiar with that. Like, obviously, it's just creating a huge stereotype that makes it harder for a lot of people. Um, so, while he was being accused of all this, what everything that uh, Fred was saying, everything his lawyer was arguing for him, he slept through it. What? He slept through what? all of it. Oh. In the courtroom. Yes, in the courtroom. Oh. He slept through most of it. And the jurors are watching him just sleep there. Mm-hmm. Oh. Yep. Like when he slept when he murdered someone. Yep. Oh, and his he's lawyer. just a tired guy, man. Oh, yeah, he's so tired yes. all the time. He's, it's the killing, man. It's, it makes him tired. I know. <laughs> like, so I was about to say that. Like, <laughs> just making it harder for narcoleptics, too. So, his lawyer, Lawrence, blamed this on his allergy to bologna, which he, had to, which he had to eat while in jail. <laughs> what? He um, had, apparently, he had to eat bologna sandwiches in jail, and he's allergic well, to it. So if you're crazy. allergic to something, even if you're in jail, they're not going to feed it to no, you. Right. No, yeah. Yep, you just tell them. Right. Yep, they have alternative stuff, mm -hmm. I yep. know. So, uh... Even for, like, vegetarians and stuff, like, you don't have to eat it. <laughs> uh, if you don't. Also, why would that make you Take sleep? Take the bologna off and eat the bread. <laughs> right. Don't be a dumb, right? So... But why would that make you sleep in a courtroom? I, I don't know. That's what he blamed it on. Okay, so, mm -hmm. Dr. Park diets, or dites, I think, uh... Had, he had previously appeared for the prosecution of Arthur Shawcross, John Hinckley, and Jeffrey Dahmer. 
Oh. And he came as a prosecution witness supporting the case against Rifkin. Oh. Oh. That's positive. He said that Rifkin was sick, but not insane, and he knew exactly what he was doing, and he did it. Uh, Lawrence didn't really have a great argument for this, <laughs> and there was so much evidence against Rifkin that the jury had basically no difficulty in making a decision. Nope. Uh-uh. Um, I'm not surprised. So, on May 9th, 1994, the jury returned after a brief discussion. I think it was, brief. well, it was like oh, half an hour. Half, yeah, yeah, half an hour. It was half an hour. I mean, come on. <laughs> they found him. They were probably just laughing back there like, ah, <laughs> this guy's so guilty. Let's talk about the news. <laughs> right. <laughs> I make it look like we at least discussed right. it. Right. They found Rifkin guilty of not only the murders, but reckless endangerment for when he made the police chase him prior to his arrest. Yeah. The judge gave him 25 years to life for murder. And after the first trial was over, was he was oh for and, just the one yeah he was and he was waiting for his sentence. <laughs> how how much he got? Um, Rifkin was moved to Suffolk to stand trial for the murders of Evans and Marquez. And after the suppression hearing failed, and when the defense of constitutional violations also failed, Rifkin pled guilty to the murder of Sanchez in I Queens. Am, I am curious how the suppression. Uh, and of the constitutional rights being, to, how did that that not work? Yeah, like I understand, As like yes, attorney, he killed people, but and a lawyer, you like, still can't do that. Worked, right? All of that should have been thrown out in my personal opinion. Right. I'm glad it didn't. Right. But because there was no evidence been. besides that, like yeah. that was, it should have been. So he pled guilty to the murder of Sanchez in Queens and three more counts of murder in Brooklyn. The victims were. Orvieto, Holloman, and an unnamed woman killed in 1992. By January 1996, Rifkin was already sentenced to 183 years in prison oh. for seven murders and still had the other homicide hearings to go through. <laughs> oh. Uh, the case for the suppression of evidence for constitutional violations was taken to the Supreme Court of the state oh. of New York by See, Rifkin's lawyers, insane. but in 2002, the New York Supreme Court trashed his appeal <laughs> and maintained his conviction for the murder of the women. Now, don't get me wrong, he's guilty as all, all get out, and he should get all every year they gave to him, but how did it make it to the Supreme <laughs> Court and still not get thrown out? I have lost faith in the justice system. I mean, imagine if he wasn't actually guilty. Right, right. And, and you know what I mean? Right. Oh, okay. He's currently serving a term of, wait for it, 203 years. Wow. In, to life. To life. Oh. In Clinton, uh, to life. Yes. In, yes. In Clinton, New York Correction Facility. He will not be eligible for parole until 2197. <laughs> oh, I won't even be alive. <laughs> None of us. Definitely not him. I think that's 100% a life sentence. Yep, yep. So, yeah, uh, that's pretty much all I have. Mm, wow. Alrighty. Uh, um, I apologize for my part of it. <laughs> it was yeah, a little stuttery. And, oh, man, that was... Um, justice was definitely served, but... Oh, yeah. I yeah. think they, they definitely bent some rules getting in He's there. He's definitely where he needs to be right now. Uh -huh. mm -hmm. Is he still alive in jail? He I believe like, so. committed suicide or anything? Nope. Nope. Nobody's killed him. <laughs> somebody should have. Oh, I'm yeah. sure he's got to be in there annoying oh, the crap yeah. out of somebody. Someone's going to get tired of him eventually, and I hope they do soon. <laughs> wow. I can only hope it's a slow, painful death. So, um, do we have anything for this that we're going to be putting on our Instagram? We're gonna yes. Post him. He's I... ugly. 
Yes. He's um, awful looking. Oh my. This is him I, around now. Oh yeah. I I don't see how um, I've seen worse serial killers. Yeah, this though, was actually. when he was arrested. He's disgusting looking. <laughs> he looks like a cow. <laughs> the look at grossest cow look, ever seen. the hair. Ew! The oh, long, I didn't even notice that till you. The said long it. hair. Oh my. The goatee. Yeah. Just ew. I mean, he definitely blends in. He yeah. wouldn't stick out in a crowd. Oh no. No. Especially no. in the nineties, but yeah. Mm, definitely wouldn't. Just ugly man. Just awful. Just. I hate looking at his face. <clears throat> so definitely check out our Instagram. Uh, man, that sounds like murder. <laughs> it's literally just the name. That's all it is. If you want to look us up on Spotify, if you haven't already found us there, um, you have to make sure you use that comma, man, comma, that sounds like murder, or it won't come up. Which is weird. Yeah, it really it is. Really is. Um, go listen to our first episode if you are, haven't already. Yes. Yeah. It's about Hunter Kaifek. If you haven't heard of it, it's pretty cool. Not cool, but... It's unsolved. <laughs> it's, an, it's an interesting unsolved case. For yes. Sure. Um, yeah. Thanks for having right. And uh, hopefully we won't leave y'all hanging as long uh, the second time around. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, it took- give us suggestions for our next oh, case yes. because it took yeah. us a long time to even figure out who we were going to do. Oh, yeah. Yeah, so hop on our Instagram and give us um, some... And we'll put a Q&A on Spotify. You can yes. do that. Oh, I didn't yes. know you could do that. Yes, we will put the kids a Q&A are, on there. Um, more up to date on this technology so, than I am. Comment cases you want to hear um, on Instagram and answer the Q&A on Spotify. That's it. Yep. Bye. Bye. See you later. Bye.